Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. That Spider-Man is a menace. (laughs) (laughs) I am Rob Chan. And Megan McHugh. And this is Zero G. Episode number 1374, entitled Sand Spiders. And our podcast title is With Great Potter Comes Great Repotability. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're all here for Zero G today. Happy New Year. Yes, happy 2022. I think uh, everybody breathed a bit of a sigh of relief. But what what was your New Year's like, Rob? Uh, it was a Friday night, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Hmm. Um, well, we just sat back and watched an episode of the new season of The Expanse. Oh, <laughs> it's a pretty good New Year's gift. Couldn't get better than that. And then <laughs> listen to some illegal fireworks later on. Uh, I yes. said listen to. We didn't shoot them off or anything like that. We had no choice but to listen to them. Mm, mm, mm. And, uh, yeah, what a time it is. Yeah. Wow. We're out of that bit that chased between Christmas and New Year. Mm. And uh, there's so much to talk about. Yeah. Doctor Who, Eve of the, time, Eve of the Daleks, uh, time loop story. One of the best I've seen on the Doctor. Ooh. Awesome stuff. But they still haven't bloody well explained how the universe was restored after the flux mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. story arc. As someone who's not been keeping up, these words are all very confusing to me, but I am <laughs> nodding and smiling. That's what a lot of people listening to Zero G say. I have no idea what you're talking about, but you're so passionate about it. It's true. That's part of our charm. <laughs> uh, that and the Jedi mind tricks. You will listen to Zero G. <laughs> this is the show you're looking for. Now, Tom Hanks in that Finch post-apocalyptic movie. It's mm. streaming at the moment. I actually enjoyed that. Okay. Avoids a lot of the post-apocalyptic cliches. Which is pretty much a minefield these days because there's a lot of post-apocalyptic stuff out there and it's starting to get a little trite. So it's nice to hear this is a breath of fresh, <laughs> <laughs> deathly air. Yeah. And, hey, we're in the we're in the apocalypse now, so we're all sort of kind of – we know the procedural, so we're very picky. You've got to do it well, otherwise no, no interest, thanks. Mm. And speaking of apocalyptic movies, there's Don't Look Up, mm. an incredibly biting gallows humour satire mm. upon just about everything but it's it's pretty much a, a comet strike movie and it is a metaphor as well originally for the climate change crisis mm-hmm. but as it happens also a, a metaphor for people's behavior during the pandemic or some people's behavior anyway it might be a bit raw for me i haven't quite caught that one yet even though i'm a big fan of that director he also did the big short which is one of my mm. favorites and of course a big fan of seeing what leo's up to at the moment so mm. i might have to check it out yeah 
And The Expanse, its final season, is now showing as well on streaming. Just as good as ever. (laughs) One of the finest science fiction television shows on at the moment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And actually of all time, a really strong storyline. Have you read the books, Rob? I've read the first book. Okay. And, And although this normally doesn't play that way, the show is done so well and so richly are the characters depicted, it's actually more signal than Mm. the books, and Mm -hmm. that's unusual. Mm. Uh, Lost in Space Season 3 is on as well. Still kicking. Still kicking. And Discovery Season 4 is on Paramount+. Plus. Much to my despair because I don't actually have that streaming service. There was a hullabaloo, wasn't there, about its eventual home, but that's a bit disappointing for fans. And there's another uh, Star Trek uh, new live-action series too coming up on that too. Oh, wow. So I'm missing out at the moment. I I did see too the Boba Fett is – the Boba Fett TV show is out now on Disney+. Plus. I haven't had a chance to catch that yet. Have you? Yes. Okay. First episode of The Book of Boba Fett. Um. Look, he's not my favourite character, <laughs> never was. Mm. And one of their problems is going to be uh, distinguishing it from The Mandalorian. Mm-hmm. Just on that, you know how I'm always on about action is uh, like a, a musical? Yeah. You know, action yep. movies like musicals. Well, the moves that you can do in that Mandalorian armour, a lot of that sort of stuff, that procedural has already been sure. really covered in Mandalorian. Yeah. So this one's got to distinguish itself. Yeah, interesting. I, it's, I wonder if they're riding on those metal coattails or if they can bring something <laughs> something fresh. Yeah, yeah. But I did enjoy the first episode. And, of course, his sidekick is the cavalry from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Nice. So awesome stuff there. Um, the James Watt Telescope has been launched mm-hmm. successfully. Mm-hmm. And the white knuckle ride begins because it's got something like over 300 separate things that have to go right as it travels out to the, if memory serves me, the Lagrange two-point in space. This is absolutely actually orbiting the sun. Wow. Uh, And to get it out there and deployed, there's all these different things that have to go precisely right. Ooh. Ooh, yeah. (laughs) We've... No hope at the present of anyone nipping out there and repairing it like they did with the Hubble. Yeah. Because this is not Earth orbit. Uh, And, of course, you know, so many people have passed away in the larger world beyond the genre. Yeah. Betty White. Betty White, yeah. That one hit me, I feel like. And it was New Year's Eve as well and as if 2021 didn't take enough from us. But she, uh, I love Betty White and I think she's a pioneer of her time. So she had a very Mm. good long run. She was 99. Disappointing she couldn't make it to 100, but she she did a lot with those years. She wanted to keep her Lego, which (laughs) has ages uh, 3 to 99, so... You know, she would have liked that. <laughs> she would have. Yeah, what a what a girl. And a golden girl as well. That's where I first well, – I'm not sure if that was where I first saw her. I bet it wasn't because she's one of those people who were ubiquitous on television. Yes. So yes. she would have been in so many different roles. I was a big fan of golden girls growing up. Mm. So, yeah. And there have actually been a large number of genre-connected deaths over the past year. Some of them we haven't been able to cover on Zero G mm. because they, they came pretty – Fast and thick towards the end of the year. You know, like Chris Achilleos, the great yeah. artist. Oh. Anyway, uh, for a future episode of, of Zero G. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're here all with the procedural, the pandemic procedural. Everything is, is so 
so well maintained at Triple R and, and so looked after. Mm. And, and I feel very safe here. Yeah, I think, ref- you know, you always have that moment of reflection as the clock ticks over and you're facing down a brand new year. And I was thinking about things that have been very, you know, comforting and ongoing support and routine and, and good things that have happened in the last year and being part of Triple R and still being part of the show and, you know, just the lengths people have gone to to make us all feel super comfortable during the pandemic to keep doing what we can do to be on air. It's just like I just wanted to – I was just thinking about how appreciative I am for all the staff and all the volunteers and broadcasters mm, mm. here to keep this ship going. Mm. Um, for example, uh, Joe Bernatic, mm-hmm. who is our astral glamour guy, but who also does work at the station, he goes above and beyond the call of duty here. Shout out to Joe. Yeah. <laughs> well, you don't have to shout out. He's just right Keep there. It. Hi, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, all of that sort of stuff, it's taken for granted a lot of the time. And I know, I know, I've, I've done um, COVID cleaning myself. Yeah. And you just cannot believe how much work goes into this. Mm. To keep people safe. It's, yeah, I think um, you're never more grateful for community and where you find community Mm. than tough times, so. Of course, I've had a rat test today. (laughs) And and I tell you that the tail tickles when it goes up your nose and it wiggles. It does. And and, and also when the rat's whiskers touch your palm and it nibbles your fingers. (laughs) I I think I'm doing it right. Yeah, I mean, it sounds accurate to me. With the right equipment. I don't know where you bought this. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's... let's, let's, uh, Refer to our mask discipline here, our Dune yes. mask discipline, Get and make sure our nose filters are up. Fitted correctly as we head out into the onto the dunes. Wear our, our boots desert fashion. and our Desert boots, I guess. Oh, well, they wear Nikes, do they, or anything like that? I don't think so. Uh, all right, now, so we've, we've done a lot of coverage of Denise. Yes. <laughs> Dune, <laughs> the new film that's out at the moment. Mm-hmm. Megan did see it at the uh, IMAX. Yes. Correct. Yeah. What was it like at IMAX? It was amazing. So I had decided early on that I really wanted to try to get to the IMAX. Um, As long as, you know, I felt comfortable and I did when I went, Um, I had thought, okay, I want to do the IMAX thing. I want to check it out. And it was well worth it. I Mm. think, you know, sometimes with IMAX, I feel it can be too immersive if there is such a thing. Too immersive. (laughs) But it was well worth it for me. But I also feel it's such a film and it looks so amazing and just the scope of the cinematography and atmosphere is it would still play very well on any kind of big screen. And I would urge if you are interested in it and you feel safe to do so, try and see it at the cinema because it's one of those epic – I think there's a lot of movies out right now that are reflective of the joy of cinema and what I love about going to the movies. And June's one of them because it just looks so good on that big screen scene in that theatre environment. And there's obviously other films such as Spider-Man which excite me in other ways that I think it's like, yes, let's get back to movie making if we can and and seeing some of this great content that we've been waiting for for a while. Because June was one of uh, Warner Brothers' 2021 slate of films Mm -hmm. that they streamed simultaneously on um, HBO Max. And then they ripped it off when they realised how popular it was going to be and they wanted to get people's sweet cinema dollars. That's not the official line, but that is probably the reason. And that caused a a massive ripple across the space-time of the cinema industry too because there were, you know... Um, artists who didn't feel like they were compensated well enough because they lost some of their box office mm, receipts and, mm, mm, mm. and anyone who had that particular deal. And, yeah. and, you know, we had that come across the Marvel Universe too. And mm. It's all very complicated. Mm. And I, I can't imagine watching 
this movie on a, an iPhone or something like that. You know? <laughs> I mean, look, no shade to people who do. Do what you want to do for sure. But as someone who loves to see, you know, I've been anticipating this film. You, you want to see it on a bigger screen. You want to get out there and, you know. Well, I don't think I really want to see a sandworm the size of a, a terrestrial worm <laughs> on a small screen. Uh, you know, that, some things it works for, mm. some things it doesn't. And I think it's it's more people, it's reviving that old debate about the place that streaming has and where movies should be seen and bringing it to the people versus keeping a booming industry going, mm. blah, blah, blah. Not mm. that they don't have enough money, but... I wanted to talk about... Look, we, we both like the Dune film. We both thought it was pretty terrific. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is... That said, my caveat is my favourite representation of Dune, apart from the book, sure. is still John Harrison's uh, Children of Dune miniseries mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, with a side order of the original miniseries, Frank Herbert's Dune as well. Sure. So, you know, but that, that aside, uh, it is a magnificent film and mm. they've really gone all out in the production. Yes. That's, that's what really struck me in the face, apart from the, you know, 800 kilometre an hour winds of sand and stuff, <laughs> that sort of thing. But, um, you know, costumes on this one. Costuming mm. is always a big part of Dune because the still suit that mm-hmm. the Fremen wear is so critical. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, a little digression here. The um, the notes that uh, Frank uh, – sorry, Brian Herbert, Frank Herbert, one of Frank Herbert's sons and uh, Kevin Anderson put together in the Road to Dune book, which is kind of a, mm-hmm. a, a look at um, – Frank Herbert's notes for the original book oh, yeah. that they found in boxes in the garage and that sort of thing. Oh, I love that stuff. And they, they put together a a, a a proto-novel of June called mm-hmm. um, uh, Spice World. No, sorry. <laughs> I did it. I knew I, I, knew I was going to stumble over that eventually. Uh, Spice Planet, mm-hmm. you know. And in that there are no Fremen as such. Oh. There are freed men because okay. they're actually mining the spice on Dune using um, uh, slave and criminal labour. Okay. So th- there's none of that. There's no Benny Gesserit. Oh, oh okay. No. So are there any women in the? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Lady Jessica is still a strong uh, point. She's one of the original characters that okay. stayed all the way through. But she's just really smart and really perceptive. <laughs> okay. You know, sure. yeah. so <laughs> somewhere along the line, Frank Herbert must have thought, there must be a reason for that beyond just her being <laughs> yeah. really good at these things. So we'll make a part of this mystical order. Uh, and, and Paul is like um, eight years old. Oh, that's right. I think you've mentioned this before mm. in one iteration where he's a child. But you know how you were telling me about the um, pharmacological wonders of, of Dune, the magic mushies? Yes. <laughs> in this proto-novel, uh, they... There's a bit where uh, Jesse, that's Duke Jesse, not Duke Leto, um, gets caught in a sand sort of uh, quicksand sort of thing and gets sucked down into the sand Mm -hmm. and comes out into a cavern. Ah, okay, yep. Which is underlying this network of subterranean tunnels. Yep. And it's full of giant mushrooms Uh, putting the spot because this is the the thing that produces the spice. Yeah, right. So there it is. It actually is giant magic mushies. Right. So at some point, I guess Herbert's gone, okay, I don't need to be so explicit about my influence (laughs) of the the mush. But, yeah, apparently he was upset. He loved looking into psilocybin, very interested in the whole chemistry of that. So Mm. not surprised that at one point it was a a one-to-one representation. Some of this we have covered in previous episodes. G yes. episodes, but we that can't I, help ourselves. That I just found 
doubt about. So the costumes in the Dune movie, Jacqueline West, mm-hmm. uh, a US American costume designer who's worked on Quills, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, and also uh, The Revenant. Now, she works out of San Francisco and she has had a lot of influence from her mother who was a a fashion designer in the 40s and 50s and Mm -hmm. that you can see. She also worked on Night of Cups. Okay. Now, that film uh, was... a had a lot of influence in it from tarot cards. And she has taken, obviously taken some of that tarot card expertise from that experience and rolled it over into June because the Benny Gesserit sisterhood in this film are clothed like they were different, what's the word, is it Akana? Sure, yeah. From the tarot cards. Wow, I hadn't picked that, but that's really interesting. Yeah. She also was highly influenced by uh, the Tuareg people so mm-hmm. there's a whole Lawrence of Arabia thing going on there mm. and I did notice that in watching the film she uses the uh, the, the robes and the big pieces of cloth mm-hmm. basically mm-hmm. there's probably a specific word for that which I'm not aware of uh, and uses them to sculpt form yes mm-hmm. and they're mm-hmm. kind of like kilts as well they're, they're user form garments they can be turned all sorts of different yeah. things and she also, this is uh, the, the costumer, she also was very influenced by medieval mm-hmm. designs mm-hmm. for the Atreides especially and the court yes. costumes. Yeah. And uh, she had a lot of influence in this from a whole variety of different sources as well as the, the medieval, the Tuareg and uh, paintings by Valaquez and Goya. You know, so uh, yeah. she okay. sort of all munched it together, which is what you need to do in a... A multicultural, multi-stellar yeah. melange of, <laughs> of uh, influences. They also had Bob Morgan working on this too. Mm-hmm. Now, we know him from his costume work from Maleficent, Mistress of Evil and Inception and a lot of um, DC movies, Batman and Superman, sure. uh, Three Kings as oh. well and the from the Earth to the Moon miniseries and a lot of X-Men movies too. So he is a okay. really experienced costumer for this kind of thing. They pulled in designs from the Marvel uh, staple of creative people like Keith Christensen who worked on Black Panther and Alita oh, yep. and Logan and and the Eternals too actually most recently and the, the Amazing Spider-Man 2. Mm-hmm. So all these vastly experienced yeah, people okay. went into building and designing these still suits, which is yeah. so important in Dune. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I really love the still suit design in this. Obviously, they uh, they had to do moulds and all of that sort of stuff. And they've actually, I think, managed to carry off the way that the still suit's this kind of uh, micro sandwich mm. technology. But it also looks like it could have been made in situ or in situ on the planet itself. Yeah. Yeah, I think... One thing I really liked about the film, and this is sort of tangential to the costume discussion, is some of the bits of technology and things that the Fremen have come up with to survive the environment, and that includes different tools and different things to get water out of certain places and use water in the best possible way. I don't know what I'd envisioned when I read the book, but I think seeing those in the film, the designs and things of those elements was really good, and it wasn't trying to be too technical it looked actually like an invention someone might come up with on that planet and then it would evolve and it was just you know very very good technology but Mm. that had organically sprung up due to necessity so i quite liked that and still suits are fall within that category 
and they kept good <laughs> and now we're all experts on this they kept good mask discipline <laughs> in, in a lot of the other dune movies they they're always taking their masks off uh, for, for to show the actor yeah to talk and do the scenes and blah blah mm. yeah they do that a bit in this to be fair uh, but, you know, they've always got the plugs up their nostrils. And the, the design is such that they've kind of gone, okay, well, this is the medium that we're going to strike where we can see the actors, but we're still going to allude to the fact they need they need this nose pipe. Oh, did you notice I felt like they backed off a bit on the, uh, the, the blue eyes? I knew you were going to say that. Uh, I don't know. Mm. I mean, I guess because in the other... In the other iterations, it's very they're very, very, very blue, right? Like a neon. In Lynch's one, they tried putting dye in people's eyes oh, and, God. you know, after a couple of <laughs> nights of bleeding blue all over the pillow and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, you know, they eventually got some art students to hand colour in the frames of the picture. Right. Ah. So they've gone, okay. <laughs> and they were very bright blue. Yeah. And by, you know, the 2000s, they've got like um, CGI sort of stuff going and yeah. other ways of doing it and then contact lenses yeah. and stuff, which must be a pain actually if you're doing them in any sandy environment. Yeah, no. no, that's a good point. Mm, I mean, I wonder how they did it here. I thought they were blue enough. Yeah, yeah, I, I thought they worked out all right without without actually drawing attention too much from the yeah. the story. And of course, we talked about the ornithopters, the winged yes. flying machines, which were glorious. They looked great. They were perfectly designed. Mm. They moved the way I would have expected. Mm. Yeah, really well realized. Mm. They went for. Um, uh, giant insects and arachnids for the Harkonnen uh, mm. designs for their uniforms. And the Baron himself, when he's wearing what I'll call the dress because I think that was the effect of it, and he, he rises up on his suspenses yes. like this giant snake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great stuff in showing, not telling. Yeah, that? there were some areas where they did well. But as we discussed last week on the show, we wanted to see a little bit more from the Harkonnen side, a mm. little bit more of them actually speaking and having some dialogue to make them interesting rather than just having a couple of set scenes that's meant to infer these guys are evil. Well, look, the Baron is, is sketched in and it's sketched in in blood but and oil, but, you know, uh, but both the Atreides and the Harkonnen Mentats, the human computers that they use in mm-hmm. the Duneverse, um, they, they were faded right back into the background. Very much so. As was faded Ralpha, the Baron's nephew, mm-hmm. and, and Dr. Yui himself, I thought, was pushed only, back way back. Only had a few scenes, but mm. um, again, I guess they just had to trade what they wanted to depict. There is probably some <laughs> redemption for some of the surviving characters of that lot we've mentioned in the second movie. Yeah. You, you can put some more in there, but they've actually passed some of the key scenes of those characters, and mm. unless you do them in flashback, you'll you'll lose that. So they lose points for me there, but the rest of the film is pretty glorious. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and I was just thinking of the uh, the Russian court uniforms because they're like originally there's a whole thing of Cossacks and uh, and Russian uh, royal families and stuff in the original novel. It feels like right. you know, like Frank Herbert has gone to that for inspiration, yeah, partly, and here they've actually realised that quite well. The the body armour that the uh, the Atreides troops are wearing. I love the way that when they're marching all, every now and then they'll all go, Atreides! Yeah. So cool. yeah. And, uh, you know, they look very practical and mm. functional. Not as good as the still suits for this planet, but they, yeah. they've just landed. Give them yeah. a break. Yeah, no. and I think, I mean, I think the main thing is everything feels very much like they've taken the brief very seriously. So mm. this edition of June, they've gone in saying we really want to do the best job we possibly can and they've 
done a very classy, serious approach. Because mm-hmm. there's ways where you could probably go a little bit more campy, a little bit more, mm. you know. But I think Denis, <laughs> our mate Denis, has gone as a fan of June, which, you know, all word says that he very much is. Same with Zimmer. They've gone, okay, we really just want to have the June that we imagined that we wanted when we first read this. Mm. And as such, like the scope of the thing and the tone, it's very much like take this movie seriously because we have tried to do exactly, you know, take Mm. this concept to the furthest that it can go. And I respect that. I think I like when science fiction goes, I'm going to go really serious on this and we're going to go 100%. And if you don't like it, tough. That was my vision. Mm. I think um, Dazza has done really well with this. In fact, he's dazzled me. So it's a Bobby Dazza. And I, I I, th- I was one- waiting for it to fall down in a few other areas, but it didn't. Mm. So you know, all all credit to cast and crew. They look forwards to the yeah. uh, second movie. Yeah. Uh, when was that going to? Well, come? they've not even started filming yet, so it's looking slated for twenty twenty three, late in the year, so October, something mm. like that. But it's been greenlit. I mean, that's the pain is that if the studio had just said, cool, you're, you're greenlit to do two movies, but he had to prove himself first with this first one. They could so have filmed them back to could back. Could have filmed them all together yeah. and we could have had another June coming up. But Well, look, it's not it's, – I mean, it's guaranteed. It's not like there's anything going to go wrong because we can all plan for the future and it works out. <laughs> no surprises. No surprises. <laughs> um, but, no, look, I think everybody is anticipating part two. I think it's been pretty well received. Mm. And, I mean, I've heard some people who've said it wasn't for them. It was a bit slow. But um, – Oh, come on. If you read the book, it romps through well, a lot of these things. Yeah, exactly. It's like they're telescoping things <laughs> madly to get it all in there. But the sheer look of it, I think it's a beautiful film. And so on that level, at the very least, mm. definite marks. We haven't, haven't mentioned the sandworms here. We have Ooh, yeah. CGI sandworms uh, instead of uh, uh, puppets and, um, and models and miniatures. And no shade on, on those. I think a lot of those work really well back in the Lynch's, yeah. Lynch's days. Maybe a mat. Your mats were, weren't quite uh, – optical mats weren't quite as good as they could have been. But but these ones, they're great, you know, and I just think it's totally convincing. Yeah. I'm ready to see more in the second film. Mm. There's a few things I want to see from the sandworm side of things. I never could figure out how they could move through the sand mm. that big. The friction, you would imagine, just alone would make them – Impractical, but I watched one of the uh, the science uh, commentators on YouTube, who of course know everything, uh, and yeah. and they explained that it would work. Okay. It was plausible. Wow, I mean, like guess the way the sand moves or whatever. Or... Yeah, it's quite complicated. And I won't go into it, but yeah, I thought that was really good. Which actually sort of my my theory was that because the guild navigators can use the spice to fold space mm. in certain of the adaptations of the book, there's other things involved there as well. Uh, maybe the dune worms actually can fold space around them to travel through the, the medium of the sand. Interesting. Hmm. But now I'm wrong because it, it's actually can it's work that physi- way. It's, it's all good. Yeah. It has to be loose sand though. It can't, yeah. be, uh, it can't be rock and dirt like yeah. the graboids yeah. tunnel through in tremors. <laughs> okay. So we were talking about Hans Zimmer who did the soundtrack for, mm. for Dune and he read the book at 12 years old first off. Probably like me, he's read it more than once along the way. So he says he's been writing the music for this for 50 years. <laughs> he's got not just the movie soundtrack, 
but also mu- music for the second movie. He's a fan. <laughs> and two other spin-off books about the making of Dune have soundtracks to them as well. Love that. So in that, in that case, what he's done is been able to take themes and motifs from mm. the movie and then expand them into sand soundscapes, as it were. Nice. So he's worked with uh, Australia's uh, Lisa Gerard as mm-hmm. well. And in this one, which is the House of Treaties theme, mm-hmm. and I, I was looking for this next week and finally found it, uh, he's used bagpipes to help represent the, the mm. Caladan... Yes. Atreides house. I was very excited when the bagpipes came out. I was like, yes, I was getting these Scottish vibes and I've been proved right by this bagpipe appearing. I like the way it's it's written about here. It says, Zimmer was able to find 30 bagpipe players around Edinburgh. Well. Hope so. If not there, where? where? (laughs) Amid the COVID-19 pandemic and recorded them playing in a church. Love that. So here is House Atreides and this is just a great thing. Hi, this is Miranda Otto, and you're listening to 3RRRFM. Captain Catherine Janeway of the Federation Starship Voyager. Zero G is fun, as you were. House of Treaties, Hans mm. Zimmer, the bagpipe version mm, mm. <laughs> from the soundtrack accompanying the Dune sketchbook. Mm. <laughs> These books have their own soundtracks. I, I, now, that I've got this strange image now of... of Sandworms being played like bagpipes. <laughs> you probably wouldn't want to play the pipes when you're out in the desert because it would attract the worms, it wouldn't would. it? The vibrations or drive them away, depending. I like bagpipes myself. <laughs> I like bagpipes too. I was, so we were saying as the truck was playing, I was very excited when the bagpipes appeared. And um, yeah, I think that track's so great. And it made me feel, oh, I'm ready to see June again, my second viewing, I think. Hmm, indeed. I hadn't thought about it. Uh, you have a Scottish connection in your name. Mm. Maybe my love well, I was going to say my love of bagpipes is genetic, but it's not at all. But uh, it's, it's learned, let's say that. Yeah. Okay, all right. So we've been talking about Dune, wonderful film. Yep. Uh, Denny has done a good job with it, mm. a fine job actually. It's not an easy book to adapt into a film. Mm. That's why he's done it in two films. Yes. Mm. So good on him. Looking forward to the next one. Yeah. I think he's struck the right tone and delivered a really lovely, cla- lovely, <laughs> a classy yet action-packed romp. Mm. Um, and, yeah, I'm just really glad we finally got to see it. Mm. Yes, I, I look forward to the next book in Frank Herbert, sorry, Brian Herbert's uh, adaptation of his father's work and Kevin J. Anderson, I'm no doubt, like, Ivermectin of June or something like that. <laughs> I'm happy to leave it at one book myself and completely miss the point of the series and leave on that note. <laughs> All right, now, serious stuff. Yes. The six MCU, Marvel Cinematic Universe movie with Tom Holland playing Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Spider-Man, No Way Home, or Spider-Man, I should say. Yes. This is the seventh big screen live action Spider-Man movie made in the USA, not originally filmed for television. Yeah. It's been a bit of a joke about the amount of reboots Spider-Man has had in the last 20 years. Caveats to that. Some of the 1977 to 1981 Nicholas Hammond Spider-Man made for TV episodes ended up in cinemas. Okay, sure. Like like they used to do sometimes. Mm -hmm. And at least one Spider-Man movie has been made in Japan. (gasps) Oh, I know there have been some other ones unlicensed in other countries. Uh, and this total, this figure totally omits the many animated movies, mm-hmm. including the highly regarded Spider-Man Into the Multiverse, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, which this film obviously resembles in many respects. Mm. 
And oh, it, into, yeah, into the Spider Verse. Into the into the Spider Verse. Sorry, yes. Uh, and so really, also the so really, we're just talking about in that number the Sam Raimi trilogy from from O two to O seven mm-hmm. with Tobey Maguire, the Mark Webb films with Andrew Garfield mm-hmm. from twelve to fourteen, mm-hmm. and. The Tom Holland MCU ones running from 2016 to now, which included Cap America, Civil War, uh, and Tom's intro into the MCU in that movie. Yep. And Avengers Infinity War and Endgame with the Russo brothers directing. And this is the 27th MCU film. Yes, we are solidly into phase four. We have been actually for a few months, given there's we've had a strong succession of uh, Marvel films coming out at the latter half of last year, 2021. But yeah, 27. Gosh, it seems like just yesterday we were watching our 20th film in the MCU. And here we are. I still remember that very first one. I am Iron Man. (sighs) <sighs> sequel to Spider-Man Homecoming and yes. Far From Home. Mm-hmm. So this is a sixth MCU Spidey film from Tom Holland. Well, it's one with Spidey yeah. in well, it. Yeah. yeah. Except you already know if you watch the trailer that it's got Dr. Octopus in it. Mm, yes. And so just as there's confusion about how many arms Dr. Otto Octavius has as an octopus, <laughs> now... You have to add in those Sam Raimi movies as canon Mm. and maybe some others, including some of which I shall say no more of. (laughs) I mean, I think one of the big contextual items is the ongoing, well, actually, no, resolved beautifully now, um, deals, battles and resolutions between Sony and Disney for the Spider-Man property Mm. where he had lived in Sony and then they'd done some talks to get him involved in the MCU in the form of a young actually looking like a teenager, Tom Holland, and then Sony trying to kind of grab him back. And there was a bit of furor from the fans. And then actually uh, everyone came together, struck a good deal and have gone off into the sunset working in tandem. So a rare case Mm. of Hollywood working together. But I think that has actually informed a little bit about um, Spider-Man as a whole as we see it in the cultural context. John Watts is directing this one, mm-hmm. as he did the other two Holland Spidey standalone movies. Uh, he's also signed to direct the Fantastic Four movie. Oh God, no! <laughs> I can't do another one of those. They're all—they've all been uh, I, garbage. <laughs> no, I just want to see Chris Evans reprise his role as uh, the Human Torch. That movie, like. <laughs> The only movie worse than that is the Fantastic Four that they did more recently, which is a very sad thing. Have you seen the Roger Corman one? Actually, no. I okay. think not. <laughs> but uh, all the pieces of that most recent one should have should have gone on. But anyway, I have yeah, faith that John Watts might revive that franchise. He he worked on uh, the um, the Onion comedy news network for a while, a few episodes oh. of that series. Uh, he's done. Movies about killer clowns and murderous sheriffs played by Kevin Bacon. And he was so determined to direct a Spider-Man movie that he sent Marvel a DIY trailer. (laughs) And I'm glad they paid attention because he gets Spidey. I really think part of the joy of this trilogy is that John Watts not only gets Spider-Man, he gets Peter Parker and he gets like, you know, the whole John Hughes vibe was very strong in Homecoming, but his Spider-Man kind of brief has evolved with each film. And I think we see that a lot in this most recent one, how it's not only matured him as a character, but like the approach to Spider-Man in the MCU. In fact, he started collecting spiders himself. 
Has he? (laughs) Maybe he's a little too obsessed. Maybe someone needs to intervene. Other people who are obviously first-class fans are the writers Chris McKenna and Eric Summers, a writing partnership, American-US writers, uh, producers and um, of both film and TV. Mm. Now, both of these guys have worked on, I think they've, they met uh, on American Dad and then they've gone on to work on so many other movies together and they've also worked on Community too, Ooh. which shows very strongly in their writing style. Mm. Uh, the Mindy Project, uh, Igor, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, the Lego Batman movie. And these are movies that I've all been have all been pretty highly regarded by me. So I, mm. make, I, can, I can see how these guys are the guys to write this. Yeah. Uh, Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle. Oh, I loved Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle. The other two Spider-Man movies before this, mm-hmm. Ant-Man and the Wasp. And uh, one of them, McKenna, actually worked on uh, Captain America, The Winter Soldier, mm. playing off his uh, community spirit with the Russo brothers. And he did some jokes for that film. So, mm, okay. You know, and it's the, the sense of humour of the Spider-Man movies cannot be downplayed. It's, it's incredibly important to it. Almost not as, not as much as, as the spider acrobatics and procedural, but obviously mm. Spider-Man is a more jokey sort of character. It is. And I think they've gone, he's a high school student. We need to make these films about high school, which largely they did ironically considering two of them aren't even set at high school. Mm. But also they've got a lighter tone because you can't have, you can't go super dark for this. So I think bringing on comedy chop people was a smart move. Well, here we are in the MCU. Uh, Thanos snapped his fingers and for five years a lot of people were dusted and not mm. in existence and everybody else who survived went on without them. And that included Spider-Man. I have so many questions about how that would work with the high school. But let's <laughs> go on. <laughs> it is. They are actually examining bits and pieces of this as they come up. It's been in the television show. It and, has, but you know. some students would be five years older and some students would be the same age. It's just odd. Well, we don't exactly know everybody in Spider-Man's universe who was blipped and who wasn't. Yeah, well, I, I think all the speaking part characters were, were blipped for convenience reasons. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so Tom Holland here back again playing Peter Parker, Spider-Man, mm. and he is dealing with the consequences of the last Spider-Man movie yes. because, of course, Quentin Beck, a.k.a. Mysterious, Mysterio, mm-hmm. from another universe uh he framed peter parker yes. for murder Jake his murder. Hall up to no good and yeah. we pick up pretty swiftly on the heels of all of that controversy as well and social media and law enforcement chaos descend on peter parker and his friends because mysterio revealed his secret identity yes you are peter parker spider-man so you know he- and the deception that Peter had done a, done a bad thing, which mm. Peter had not done. Mm. And this has echoed throughout his life. Mm. Friends, families, allies. Mm. And speaking of which, Parker seeks the aid of his recent Avengers movie ally, Dr. Stephen Strange. Yes. To help him out. Mm. So there's magic involved. Sir. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Dr. Stephen Strange, Sorcerer Supreme of Earth, or is he? Mm. Mm. Nothing can possibly go wrong with that. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Tom Holland is excellent here once again as Peter Parker, revealing some hidden depths to the character. We said Spider-Man is a a sort of a a jokester in in his own way. Yeah, but he is a lovable nerd. He is a lovable nerd, but there is a a deeper and darker side, and I'm not talking about the sort of 
Venom side of Spider-Man from the comic books and earlier movies. But there is a, a, a strong core to si- mm. Spider-Man with the, you know, the great power and great responsibility mm. thing. But also a lot of heartache. I mean, he's been through a lot in all universes, tragedy and Mm. sacrifices that, you know, it's not just great responsibility, it's great sacrifice and, you know, it's a struggle to be a hero and I like they've started to show bits of that bit of Hawkeye was kind of about that theme as well. But, yeah, Tom Holland, I think, has – it makes sense after you see everything he's been through (laughs) in these films that, yeah, things would start to weigh on him a bit – life would be a bit tougher and so on. And he'd show some of the scars of mm. of being Spider-Man. And really stand up to become the hero. There yes. are some things that he does in this, you just go, whoa. And, it, and that's the coming of age piece too. And I think, you know, Tom Holland has this kind of youthful larrikin, because he is British, uh, persona but he started to take on more serious roles and things like that and so I think this is all part of him sort of maturing as an actor as well as bringing that into his story as Peter Parker which I think is pretty cool and same same for Zendaya actually playing Mm. uh, Michelle MJ Jones Watson in this we've just seen her as uh, Charney in Dune and here she is reprising her role once again becoming much more than just a classmate and girlfriend, which is important enough in the in the in the relationships in the story, mm. and I thought handled with great delicacy and charm, mm, mm. all the feels really, <laughs> but also becoming a Scooby. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think core of this is has always been the relationship of that little trio of Scooby, like Zendaya. Uh, Tom Holland and then Jacob Batalon, who plays Ned, mm-hmm. who's also Parker's best friend. And they do toy a bit with, you know, what the dynamic between those three, how that goes. Because, you know, Peter and MJ are a couple. Um, and I think the fact that they kind of all band together and help out is, a, you know, it's a nice way to bring them into the narrative. Yeah. And yeah. the chemistry is fantastic. I mean, obviously Tom and Zendaya are actually together. So <laughs> that chemistry works out. But you can tell they all like each other as people. And I like that that comes through. And Ned, of course, Jacob, who plays Ned, he always was like the chair guy, the the computer guy in the background who could could help uh, Peter out in the field by staying at home and plotting out things. Mm. So he leans into that here again. And and that, that that little trio... I almost expect them to haul out bicycles and go riding around on them together, you know? <laughs> and it is totally convincing and it works great here and it needs to be yes. because they are the uh, – oh, forgive me, but I've forgotten what Earth number the MCU is. It's a, a quite a long number. It's not something like simple like the comic book one, which is Earth 616. Mm. It's, you know, it's like – yeah, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. And um, – it is very important that you have this sort of home team to anchor it. Because yes. as we know, as you've seen from the trailer, this is a multiverse movie mm-hmm. which pulls in characters from various incarnations of the Marvel Universe, mm-hmm. which we can't really talk about because we get, well, I don't want to get too spoilery about it. No, and I think part of the joy of the film is going in, you know, you may know bits and pieces, but just watching it and enjoying it. So mm. we don't want to ruin any part of that for anyone, if we can help it. Mm. We also have John Favreau playing Happy Hogan once again. Yep. And look, 
John Favreau's got other things that he can do. He's got his <laughs> chef cooking show. Love the chef show, yes. He's got his big adaptations of Disney properties, mm. directing those. Re- rebooting the Star Wars franchise, one could argue. Yeah, the Mandalorian, <laughs> yeah. you know. But he's there because he still connects Spidey to Stark Tech's motherland of great gear and equipment. Yeah. And... You know, he's got a bit of a superfluous relationship in this, I thought. Um, But it does actually ultimately land Mm. in an interesting place. And I thought, yeah, all right, I'll buy that. Yeah. Even though it felt like it came out of left field a little bit. Yeah, I think there's some some elements serve the narrative, though, so it kind of... But, I, I mean, obviously as well, you don't want to crowd the kitchen. And I think the reason why they bring in Happy and also just Doctor Strange is that you want to pick and choose a couple of characters that can work but still let the core Spider-Man story shine. Mm. Like we're not going to bring in a bunch of Avengers here or necessarily bring in a bunch of other characters. I mm. think Happy is always – we trot Happy out when we need to have that connection, um, but we don't want to pay for a Chris Evans or something. <laughs> Benny Batch, of course, plays Doctor Strange once again, mm-hmm. and he has sort of stepped into reluctantly mm. the mentorship role that Tony Stark had with Spider-Man. And regrets it <laughs> immediately. He's much more of a gruff character, if that's the thing. Yeah, he's not there. Although, you know, Tony had his moments of uh, not being able to relate to younger people quite so well yeah. as he might have. But, but anyway, in this in this one, he is providing the, the magical MacGuffin yes. to make the story work. And also, this is plugging into his own multiverse movie. Yes. In the mo- in the multiverse of madness later on. Yeah, we are firmly revving up the Doctor Strange char- character ready to go into the multiverse of madness standalone film that he's got coming up. Hmm. And there are some great moments between him and Spidey in this, including a bit of conflict, which is actually a, a magnificent sequence. <laughs> they have a good chemistry too. I mean, I think that's the thing. It could be Tom Holland. I think he's a nice choice because he just interfaces really well with everyone here. Mm-hmm. Also stepping up is Marissa Tomei as May Parker once again. Love her. Uh, providing kind of the Uncle Ben role mm. in this for this Spider-Man with her you know, her take on the on the mantra, with great power comes great responsibility. You know you somebody's yeah. got to say that in this one. And she's actually a a fine presence in here as um, mm. as May Parker, I thought. I think she's – I was really happy with her casting in the very first one. I think she's a great choice. Mm. There is, I thought, one problem with this film, and I mentioned it up front because it's the only one I could think of, mm. <laughs> <laughs> one somewhat unconvincing CGI realised character okay. whom they wisely keep mostly partially glimpsed or in shadows or is seen at night. Okay. Yeah, and, you know, it's a character who has to be totally CGI. Sure. It didn't quite work for me on okay. the screen. Yeah, sure. You know, that I don't want to raise this as – well, I will actually. There seems to be something like this in a lot of Marvel movies, just one character that doesn't yeah, quite – Yeah, not quite. It's like maybe they didn't quite have the time or – Yeah, sure, sure, yeah. sure. But you know what? Maybe that's just the flaw in the perfect rugs of <laughs> <laughs> Marvel movies. Not all of them are perfect. We know that. We spent a fair bit of time paying out on some aspects of the Eternals movie recently this movie covers the consequences of previous movies and produces some really satisfying emotional arcs for characters Mm -hmm. now the other person who we haven't mentioned uh really is um alfred molina reprising his otto octavius dr octopus ah 
He is one of the best things of Sam Raimi's mm. Spider-Man movies. It is a pleasure yeah. to see him on screen again in this context. Yes, with a bit of digital jiggery-pokery, <laughs> de-aging him and now providing full <laughs> life to his... Uh, I wonder if he's got different names for them, for the tentacles of his <laughs> Dr. Octopus prosthetic. Mm, mm, mm. Uh, once again... The actor is able to encompass two different aspects of Dr. Octopus's personality. Very important in this film. Many of the villains in this film have different aspects to their personality and they lean into that. And I will continue that across my description of and feelings about this film in general. Mm. They really lean up lean into back up to Doc with and are unashamedly embracing the whole multiverse thing and that's what makes it work. Mm, yeah, I 100% agree. I think it's ambitious and there's a very large scope here that they're playing with but they've got all the core ingredients nailed. The chemistry is really good amongst all the characters as a start and the story is pretty solid too. We actually have a a plot line that goes through, but then there's a point where they just kind of throw stuff away and go, let's do some action stuff. Let's, let's give the fans what they want. And it was truly a joy (laughs) to see the film. And I think that's just something I really needed, you know, just to go to the movies and see something cool and be surprised again. And I think Holland has had a chance to stretch his acting legs. And I think that's fantastic. All eight of them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, I mean, for me, there was some hits, a few misses in there, very minor. But overall, I think for biting off a huge chunk of something, they mm. they did well. Yeah. This is a film that could have easily failed on many levels or come across as just being... Uh, and here's something that we don't resile from on Zero G, just fan service because mm. we are fans. We want yeah. that service. Give it to us. <laughs> no, no, for sure. And I think smart, like when it's done in a smart way where they say this is what the fans want but we're going to execute it well, I'm here for it. This is the movie that your appetite would have been whetted for by Into the Spider-Verse. Mm, mm, mm. Mm. Yeah. Now, although... <laughs> when asked some questions about certain aspects of this film, Tom Holland lied to us. <laughs> I'm not okay with He's that. He's such a leaky bucket though, that guy. They <laughs> Having to keep him, probably keep him keep stuff under wraps. Um, oh, speaking of leaky, leaky buckets, uh, I did actually get all the tingles mm. watching this movie and misty-eyed. Yeah, basically, same. Not Misty Knight, that's another character from the <laughs> MCU. But yeah, you know... It moved me. That's the thing. It it managed to pull off some serious stuff and didn't lose kind of the core spark that has made the Spider-Man trilogy, Tom Holland's Spider-Man trilogy, mm. um, really fun and enjoyable. So There are two – there is a, a mid-credits scene and a post-credits scene. Yes. Uh, so stick around for those. They will make sense in context of the film. Yes. And the end credits themselves, once again, a beautiful palette of artwork – that yeah. really lived yeah. on the screen. Sometimes the, the end credits, they're incredible on this thing, these mm. Marvel movies, and you think... Well, they know people are going to hang around and watch them because yeah. if you're any fan, you know there's something at the end. Mm. So, yeah. Now, once again, another great soundtrack here by Michael Giacchino, and we <laughs> will go out with that, a little bit from that. Peter Parker picked a pre- perilously precarious profession <laughs> from Spider-Man No Way Home. From... Zero G's perspective, my side of the Perspex screen in the studio, my rating of this is, oh, yeah. Yeah. 
What a great film. Same. Especially because, like you said before, so many ways it could have run off the tracks, hit a wall, hit a tree, and it just glided home beautifully. Mm. Joe Brunetic coming up next with Astral Glamour. Thanks to our podcaster, Kayla Larson, although she's not doing it at the moment. She's on leave. <laughs> and so any, any glitches and mistakes you hear are all me. <laughs> Rob's like, I've got to cover myself. I've got to cover myself. Yeah, disclaimer. <laughs> and, yes, happy new year to everyone and thank you for a lovely year on Zero G 2021. It's mm. been a real pleasure. Mm. Thank you, Megan. Thank you, Rob. <laughs> G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.